Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. We're going to talk about a delicate subject today. It's it's money. I hear money come up a lot. People want to raise money for their enterprise, but are bound up with the words or the fear of asking for money or the fear of rejection, or maybe we don't think we should be asking for money because we positioned it wrong in our brains. So Russell, we're back together again. It's Tuesday at two and we're broadcasting live. How are you? It's a beautiful day out here in the Rocky Mountains out here in Denver and all is well. And yes, this is a great subject because reality with money is that everybody has relationship with it. And your personal relationship with it could impact your work. So we'll talk about that today. I met this gentleman recently. Um, I've watched his, his, um, his program on one of the, the learning platforms, Udemy or Teachable, one of those. And it's, it's a really well done program. And, and we had a chat just a couple of weeks ago at an event called CEO Space. And I got to know Clay and then we spoke last week and learned more. And I said, why don't you come on and talk about this topic to nonprofit leaders? Because we hit the wall when it comes to having the conversation about money. So let me move into introducing Clay Neves. Clay is our guest today. And Clay, uh, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. Well, it's good to be here. Tell us, uh, tell people a little about yourself and your background and why you're doing this. Um, I, I started out in sales at the ripe old age of 12. Um, my mom bought me a suit, thought it might be good for me to learn how to sell. So uh, she bought me How to Win Friends and Influence People, had me read it, bought me a little suit little tie and um, she taught me she taught me four things on how to contact people and uh, it's probably the most important sales training I've had in my entire life you know basically uh, eye to eye contact and smile then shake then hello my name is Clay what's yours and then ask them a question and then keep asking them questions about themselves they'll love to talk about themselves go forth and sell these greeting cards. And I did. Um, and then, you know, I had various sales jobs, but when I was about 27, I, I, cause I was finishing up my, uh, my college work, uh, you know, a little older, but, um, uh, I, I got a job as a, a, a business to business telemarketer selling long distance, uh, calling plans. Uh, only the old people remember that. <laughs> uh, long distance, uh, what do they call them? Numbers. We had to dial in the number and then connect to it. And then we could dial the number we wanted to dial. And then we had to put in another code and it was just, it was ridiculous. But anyway, I did amazing at that. And uh, so about a weekend, because it was a big project and they had to hire about anybody that could breathe, they promoted me to uh, uh, a supervisor. And I had 10 young probably anywhere from 18 to 23-year-old women. Most had no sales experience whatsoever. They had an old, a handset for the, you know, to call on, and I had a monitoring phone with a handset. 
And I, I, I just, it just kind of started naturally, but it, it became systematized that as I was listening to their call, they would miss these opportunities uh, that they would think were objections or were like, oh, I don't want it. And I'd go over and I'd whisper in their ear what to say, and it would turn the conversation around. And I'd only have to do that a few times before they got the feel for it themselves. The timing of answering an objection, what to say, how to say it, to keep, uh, and I kind of use the um, analogy of a tennis game, to keep the golf ball going back over the net, right? Because all you need to do is hit the ball back over the net one more time than they do, and you get the sale, right? Anyway, we were the top team every week. Uh, I ended up managing that entire program, including instituting a, a statistical quality control uh, program where we could statistically score the presentations. And as I listened to hundreds and thousands of these calls, I built up over time an instinct in terms of what keeps the conversation going and what shuts down the conversation and would script accordingly, put it back out on the floor, listen and test and statistically measure it again. And this was program after program. I opened a call center for the company. Uh, we ran that for a while and, and it wasn't very much longer before I was managing five of these outbound, mostly business to business call centers. And um, I, I just picked that up. And I've done a lot of inside sales, but I've also done key account selling to major corporations like Citibank, AT&T, um, had a great set of clients that I, I managed on the East Coast as an account executive for a national company, um, as well as um, experience as a, um, a Chamber of Commerce president. And you know that kind of gave me some insight into the nonprofit world. And, and, and the way that they were selling memberships and donations was uh, just terrible. And um, uh, I think a lot of that will apply, and we may talk about some of that today and how it applies to a uh, nonprofit. Because, uh, you know, we focus on that word nonprofit to the exclusion of the word that follows it nonprofit business, right? <laughs> so, sales is still a very important part of any nonprofit business. Uh, at least that's what I think. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, I also managed, uh, was hired by a company to um, take their seminar marketing channel. And we took that from about uh, 300,000 a year to about 3.5 million in about three years. And uh, we also, um, earned an Inc. 500 award along the way. And uh, that, was, that was an amazing experience. But these principles of sales growth, I think are universal. And um, you know, 33 years of sales management experience, there's not a lot of sales situations I haven't seen. There's not a lot of sales problems I haven't coached salespeople through. There's not a lot of uh, deals gone sideways, um, you know, you see patterns and there's just really a handful of, of things that you can, you can correct uh, as you start to categorize them and understand what's at the heart of the problems. 
And uh, so that's a little bit about my background, but um, been heavy into networking um, and building business by building these relationships and partnerships and um, leveraging relationships I already have to create new sales relationships. And I've uh, been doing that very well. And of course, as a Chamber of Commerce president, uh, that was my stock in trade. So Love that's it. why I'm here. Love it. Love it. Um, so let me, um, let me reframe what you just said. We spend, we mean Russ and I and those of us at CenterVision Leadership Foundation, um, spend a lot of effort uh, working with people to understand why the so-called nonprofit, by the way, that's the only organization that I know of that constantly defines itself by what it's not. So we describe ourselves by what we're not, but really we are a tax exempt business and there's very strict rules about what happens with that money flow. And, and so you've, you've hit on a really crucial point. We need to install good sound business principles into this, this charity that we run. And, and so I think we all melt down, whether we're raising equity money for a business or we're trying to pitch a new product. There's so many of us that it's not our thing, we think. And so what's the biggest challenge for people selling? We're selling an event that we're doing, we're selling a sponsorship, we're selling donors or grant makers on why they should fund an initiative. So what do you find is the biggest hang up with anybody, but most especially those running this, this tax exempt charity that we're talking about? Well, the biggest thing I see in nonprofit is we're so uh, utterly convinced that our donors, our sponsors, are the ones that are doing us the favor. That the value is only flowing one way. And so in a sense, it's not selling, it's more begging. And it feels like that sometimes, you know? But if you go from the assumption that, doggone it, this sponsorship has value, and you start to look at it from the aspect that what I have to offer solves a problem, not only for the people my charity serves, but for my sponsors. And so what, what is that problem that sponsors have that, that, that makes them pay money for a sponsorship? Well, the best way to do that is ask your best sponsors. What are they getting out of this? Why do they spend the money? What problem does it solve for them? Uh, when I first took over the Chamber of Commerce, it was like we had a sales guy that would go out and basically shame people into joining the Chamber of Commerce because the Chamber of Commerce did so much good in advocating business uh, interests within the city, right? And that they should be part of that. And uh, you can see why membership was lacking. So I turned it around and said, why would a business owner pay money to become a member of the Chamber of Commerce? What are we doing for them? So the question was turned around, not why aren't you a member of the Chamber? It does so much good for businesses in general. But the question then became, what are you trying to accomplish in the Murray City area? 
tell me what you're trying to get to here. Who do you need to connect with? What do you need uh, to put out there? What, what constituencies uh, do you want to be more exposed to? What, are you, what do you want to accomplish here? And then we'd talk about their business objectives. Now in that, we found several ways that chamber membership could help them meet their objectives, could solve problems. But we had to begin the discussion in terms of what do they want their business to be? What are their goals and objectives? Now, once you speak to your biggest donors and sponsors, you'll find the problems that you solve for them. And then as you approach potential sponsors and potential uh, donors, the questions that you ask revolve around uh, those potential problems. You can ask them in what I call have you ever form. You know, ha have you ever wanted to be more connected in the community? You know, have you ever thought that it's more, it's not just about making money, but it's about giving money away so that you can save money on taxes too? You know, so just talk about it from their interest rather than the interest of the um, of the nonprofit first. Um, now, that being said, what nonprofits offer is also a huge psychological and emotional value exchange. People want to give back. And... Um, you know, but we, we want to talk about how they feel about that and what some of their objectives are. What criteria do they have in terms of giving and sponsoring? What availability do they have as far as time and money? Um, these kind of questions uh, and coming in and just kind of exploring a little bit where they are. Uh, the one thing I found, I spent two years on a, uh, an LDS mission in Japan. And uh, basically what I was doing there was trying to persuade people about an anthropomorphic God to um, a culture that believes in a, a very kind of mystical pantheistic, pantheistic concept of, of, of God. And I had to start from where they were. I had to start from their understanding of the word we used for God. Um, a word that might not have had the same meaning to me than it had to them. And I had to start with their meaning. And so we have to come at them from their interest, from their language, just like in any sales situation. But we should, we should not be coming at it from the aspect that we have nothing to offer them, that there's nothing they get out of the sponsorship, and they're just doing it out of the kindness of their heart, and that's it we're doing as much of a favor for them as they are for us. That's why it's a value for value exchange. Does that make any sense? Or am I just rambling now? No, no. no. And then uh, <laughs> I never know. My wife says, all right, we get it, Clay. We get it. We get it. We get it. There's some good stuff in there. I'm going to, I'm going to mute you. We're having some feedback problems. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go to, to Russell. Um, Russell comes up with this topic often and not only in raising money, he's, he's an expert at creating the value proposition and attracting money, um, but also in um, recruiting board members. And Russ, talk a little bit about how we find out 
uh, or, or what's the what's the conversation like in finding out what they're looking for? Well, you know, I'm glad that there's people out there that embrace that dreaded V word, because when you get in nonprofit circles, it's just a word that nobody utters. I went to a uh, an event put on by South Metro Denver Chamber of Commerce where they actually had nonprofits pitch what they were doing. And at the first annual event, we had zero out of 12 nonprofits mention the word value. So value, you know, value is what you bring to the table and values are what drives you, what's at the root of everything that you do. So it's very important to look at values as well as value. And that, by the way, is I have four steps to building a high-performance nonprofit. And step four is clearly communicating the value you bring. And you have to do that in language that resonates with the person you're talking to. So it could be a board member, a volunteer, an advisor, uh, people getting your services. Value is in the ear of the beholder. So you're talking to them about how you solve their problem, and everybody has a different thing that they're interested in. So it's finding that, and part of that is, is being clear about who you are and communicating that in terms that are meaningful to them so that they see you as somebody that can help them. You're offering a partnership. We're partnering and collaborating to solve this problem. Uh, so it's not a hat in hand process, but nobody gets any training uh, on any of this. And we're all selling. Uh, we're solving problems, but somehow this notion uh, of selling makes us feel like used car salespeople or not that they're unethical. I know a couple of folks here. Uh, there's a there's a young lady by the name of Lisa Malik, a good friend of mine, his wife. Uh, Lisa, uh, uh, and I know a young salesman here in in, uh, in the Colorado area, right here in Denver, six-figure salesman, uh, Aaron Cabot, my godson. And he or Lisa, they could sell shoes to a man or a woman with no feet. Uh, and it almost seems like it's a mystical, magical skill, but uh, it sounds like it's something, too, that can be taught. And I think our relationship with money has an impact on, on how we approach sales. So uh, what's been your experience with that kind of dynamic? How does that impact people? Okay, hang on, Clay. We're both trying to do it at the same time. We, go ahead, unmute yourself. I, evidently, I've cut you off. There we go. Um, you know, I, I say it in a little different way, but it's music to my ears. When you said value is in the ear of the beholder, uh, you know, I teach that value only exists in one place, and that is behind the eyes and between the ears of the prospective relationship that you're trying to form. And um, only there is the value of what we're offering found has nothing to do with the price of what we're offering, other than the fact that the value had better be greater than the price or you're going nowhere. 
but how do you establish value? Um, are we conversant in the language of the donor or the sponsor who are often coming at it from a business uh, uh, decision? The good news is there is no such thing as a business decision. Every decision a business person makes is for personal reasons. They may couch it in a business decision, but if a decision is made, it's for a personal reason. They either think it will help their search situation, help them look good, help them look better uh, to whoever it is they need to look better to. Um, it, it may be something that's important to them intrinsically, a value that they have that this will really help. And they've established a certain level of contribution or donorship that they either can or want to put toward that value to be seen as a good person or to have exposure, uh, whatever their motive. And, uh, you know, their motive might not always, always be altruistic. It may be flat. I need a tax uh, exemption. I need a tax deduction. And I need, I, and if I can make myself look good and get exposure in the community at the same time, well, heck, why not? But we need to know what that is. So it comes down to asking the right questions in the right sequence so that it's absolutely not a presentation, a conversation. So I try to teach my clients, we don't have sales presentations. We have sales conversations. We ask questions conversationally. We don't get into survey mode. We don't get into interrogation mode. It's a conversation. And there are uh, conditioned responses that we have. As we get into conversations, questions are one of the strongest conditioned responses. We're asked a question. We just have a conditioned response we need to answer. If we understand the question, if we know the answer to the question, and if the question is um, easy enough, we will answer it without thinking. And so in, in building questioning sequences, we make it so easy for them to answer the questions that they do it without really thinking. And we can get to their true thinking that way. Does that make sense? Can you give us an example of one of those sequences? Okay, so here's a typical sales question, okay? Um, and, and we may put it into multiples, but we come into the office, we sit down with the person, and we say something to this effect. We're here to save the whales. We think whales are really, really important to our ecology and, and the health of the planet, and we need your help. So how much would you like to give today? And that's our sales question. Okay, either that or we get into it and it's such a complex question, you know. Um, so what do you think is the best reason to give for uh, altruistic reasons or tax savings or this or that? And, and what is it that you've done in the past? And we ask about five or six questions before we let them answer and they're so confused about what we want to know that it's not easy for them to answer so they don't. But if we go in with a more natural conversational, even personal uh, style, like we would if we met somebody at a 
at a cocktail party or a, a you know a birthday party for a cousin or a family reunion, you know a new uh, a new cousin-in-law or whatever. What do we do? We start you know we introduce ourselves and we and then we ask them something very easy about themselves. So what do you do, John? Oh, really? How long have you been there? And we build question upon question on the answer they gave us, right? And we go down that path a little way, asking subsequent questions that clarify the answers they gave us to the original question until we understand that. Then we can change the subject with another question. So we might ask the first few questions about what they do. Then we might ask about, so where are you from? And uh, then we ask a couple of questions about their answer to that. Oh, well, I'm from Boise, Idaho. Oh, really, Boise? Um, were you born there then? No, I was born in Salt Lake City. Well, how did you get to Boise? And we might ask a couple of questions that way. But as we're doing this little dance of um, reflective questions and uh, getting the responses that we're just so accustomed to giving when we're first introduced to somebody. We're building a foundation of common ground, of trust. And uh, we can then escalate those questions incrementally until we can get into some really serious questions that they feel okay answering for us. So for example, well, John, have you ever been a donor before? Have you ever sponsored some charity before? And how did that work out for you? Was it a good experience? If not, why? You know, what went wrong, do you think? Okay. And I don't know, do you have any value uh, or intention of looking at sponsoring or um, um, donating to, to nonprofit in, in the future? And if so, what, what criteria might you use? You know, what causes are important to you? What ones do you tend to align yourself with or that align themselves to your values? Which ones are you most um, interested in? You know, and we start to build a profile of how he gives. And uh, it, it might be, so when you did, what was, what was the reason beyond the fact that you wanted to contribute to a worthy cause? What else did you feel you got out of that? Or, or that you wanted to get out of that. Now, if we have done our homework and spoken to our best donors and to our best um, uh, sponsors, and we see a pattern as we talk to 10 or 20 of them as to these deep-seated reasons they give that might not, the, the ones that go beyond their, their true altruism, we can be ready for a really meaningful discussion so, for example, we can ask questions as we get their trust about their tax situation. What does your tax situation look like this year, John? Are you concerned? Has it been a great year for you and you've got a lot more profitability? Um, you you want to get something out of that other than just giving it to the IRS this year? Tell me about your tax philosophy this year. What's going on with your business? And we get them to talk about these reasons that we are aware of because we've done our homework talking with um, our, our best donors, the ones that we want to duplicate. And we can then 
uh, craft our conversation around those, um, the value that our best donors have received so that donors and sponsors like them will, will be attracted by that. It's their, it'll be their language. It'll be familiar to them. Love Does that it. make any sense? I love it. Um, so there's a couple of things that, that are underneath what you're talking about. <laughs> One of the, the, the most common problems that, that Russell and I see when we interact with, with these organizations, either clergy or nonprofit executive directors, is burnout. <laughs> and so we're talking to these people now, the executive director of the clergy, and we're telling them this is what they need to do. So there's another piece of this. How do we, you know, we, we're burned out because we overfunction. We're doing things that could be delegated. And so we complain about the board making us do things. We're not doing things. Well, it's our fault because we are doing things for them that they should be doing. And so I have, this is a two-pronged question. What advice do you have for these leaders that are listening to this live or on the podcast? What can they do to then teach their stakeholders, which would include board members, staff, others, teach their stakeholders to, to make presentations and B, part of that, what does it say on your shirt? And I know you have a good program that's, that's a good program that people can walk through and learn. So this, we're not here to, to, to sell stuff, but it's an awesome program that I think would help people get a leg up on this. So, so tell us what's on your shirt and where people can find that and then you know, help address this. This is a very tricky topic that we all get stuck in. You mean my spaghetti stain, right? Or, no, you just got kidding. right there on the shirt. That's my oh, that's my logo. Yeah, that that's weird. <laughs> uh, it looks like I should point over here, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's my logo. Personal sales dynamics, and uh, I call it personal sales dynamics because my mission is to put the personal back in sales. You know, when we form relationships on a personal level, we almost always do it better than we do when we're doing it on a business level. It's natural to us, and we somehow we get it right, and we're able to make friends, and and we don't feel unnatural about it, like we're pushing ourselves on somebody. Well, if you're selling like you're pushing yourself on people, you're not selling the most effective way. Just like just like when I met my wife, I didn't go up to her and say, "Hey, what are you doing next Friday night? I've got a chapel uh, set aside in Las Vegas." Uh, you know. I asked her to dance and then, you know, would you like to another dance? And then would you like to go to lunch? Would you like to go to, you know, ice cream? Oh, would you like to go to dinner? And then she invites me over to her place for dinner. And then, you know, we keep going out and then pretty soon we fall in love. And, and then I reach a point where I want to trust her with everything I am and everything I have. And 32 years later, we're still happily married. Okay. But I didn't get there overnight. And, the best business relationships are built incrementally too. Now, we can speed that up. We can make it more effective. We can systematize it so that, so that we can get there the most sure and quick way we can. But we don't want to cross the line of, of putting too much out there, much more than they want at any given stage so that we push them away. Does that make sense? Sales isn't about pushing, it's about sucking. And I mean that 
creating the vacuum that if they're interested in what you're saying, they will be sucked into it. So, so, so that that what I mean when I say I suck and fail. Yeah, well, in the way I'm talking about it, that's a good thing. But uh, I've seen people who suck at sales the other way too. But it's usually because they're pushing, not sucking. Anyway, um, and it's not, it's not uh, being a milk toast by any means. It's not, not um, asserting yourself into the conversation. It's doing it in such a way that you're inviting them to self-qualify. In other words, there's a lot of talk in sales about, well, you got to be good at qualifying your potential clients. No, I'm terrible at it. I'm never going to be as good at qualifying potential customers as they are in qualifying themselves. I've just got to give them the opportunities to do that. So what opportunities can you give them at a little level, okay, to see how interested they are? It's, it's one of the reasons that uh, a lot of my business is based on free stuff at the beginning, okay? So would you like four chapters of my book for free? Because I know that if they don't take that, if they're not interested in four chapters of my book for free, I'm wasting my time talking to them about buying the whole book or worse yet, engaging me for a 13-week one-on-one coaching regimen, right? But if they qualify for that, ah, okay, I follow up after they've read it. Have you read it? No, I haven't. Oh, okay, I thought that was interesting to you. Oh, it is, I've just been busy. Well, do you still intend to read it? Well, sure. Okay, well, hey, let me call you next week and uh, see what you think. That would really be helpful if you could give me some feedback. Could you do that for me if I called you in a week? Sure. I call them back in another week. They still haven't read it. What am I learning? They haven't, they haven't continued to self-qualify. I found the extent of their interest. Okay, but if after the first week I call them and they go, that was awesome. I want the whole book, right? And then I can, okay, great. Here's a, here's a link. Go order it. And, you know, you might also be interested in some of my online training. Let me hook you up on a couple of free videos, and you can watch those, see how those work for you. Sound good? Oh, that's great. I can't wait to get the link, right? So he gets his book. He gets the link. I follow up in another couple of weeks. And he goes, man, when can I get some more videos? That was awesome. But if he says, oh, I'm sorry. I've been so busy. I haven't had a chance to do that. And, and I call two weeks later and same thing. What does that tell me? When I do a free seminar, what does it tell me when somebody, they haven't given me their money, but they have given me their time, right? And that says a lot. They've self-qualified. So what can we put into our recruitment process for donors, for board members, for whatever? Give them an opportunity. Give them an invitation that if they're interested at all, they'll step toward you. And then what's the next step? And what's the next step of invitation? And if you've asked the right questions that heighten and help them understand they are interested, this is a value to them, they'll, they'll keep stepping forward. And so sometimes we just ask far too much too soon. 
And that I think is one of the, the biggest uh, downfalls in selling is that lack of sensitivity to what they're ready to commit to. When I take on a partner, uh, you know, and you and I had a talk, uh, but I've had others where they want to go big and they want to, yeah, we can do this. And then, oh yeah, we can take it to Vegas, you know? And, and I'm like, look, why don't we try one client back and forth and see how that works and see how we like working with each other. So I would propose our next step be, I'll refer a client to you and you work with them. You refer one of yours to me, I'll work with them. And after we're done, let's reconvene and see how that worked out. I would really love to expand this. I just wanna make sure we understand the best ways to work together. And don't you think the best way to do that is, let's start with the first step. Okay, I don't like to say something small. I just like to say, let's, uh, let's work it out on a small scale before we really expand it. Think big, start small, test, 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 validate, duplicate, accelerate. You know, another way of saying that, you can do one in a row. Yeah. So Russell, um, what's cooking in that brain? What are you hearing there? And do you have a question to fold back to our guest? Oh, this is all great stuff. Yeah, relationships are what it's all about. Everything is personal everything you know and so it's a courtship and uh this is one thing that's pretty commonly overlooked like in the grant space for an example uh there are a lot of private foundations out there and a lot of people will go out there cold and and send a proposal to a, a private foundation uh the better path is to pick up the phone and and just Ask for a few minutes with uh, with one of the program officers after you've looked through their material and done some homework to see. Okay, let's get a a, a, a thirty thousand foot view of what moves them. Look at what they funded last year. Look at what they say their priorities are, because when you when you ask that program officer for that ten or fifteen minutes you want to kind of find out what's not on the requirements page you know you know dig a little deeper and ask them some questions you might even have a project in mind as you're asking the questions and you and you mention that program does this sound like it would fit with your priorities uh, uh and if if they say that yes or oh would it be okay for me to send a proposal even though they're open you're asking them if you can but what you're doing is you're kind of checking where what it is you want to do fits with their priorities it's really all about finding their priorities and that takes some time and and patience but it's well worth the effort because finding out what a good project looks like for these folks will save you a lot of time and aggravation and save them a lot of time and aggravation. And uh, that time could be put to better purpose, you know. So, you know, one of the questions, and, and so for relationships, uh, uh, there are some essential relationships that a business would need what are some essential relationships that a nonprofit would need? Is that a question? Yes, sir. Okay. 
um, you know, I think the relationships are very much the same. We just have different names for them in the nonprofit. Um, you know, we have customers and clients, uh, depending on the nonprofit, they may, they may, uh, they may term those different ways. And in some nonprofits, it's um, uh, the people being served are sometimes called clients. I'm on the board of a, a, a nonprofit that works with people getting out of incarceration, particularly for drug-related offenses. And uh, we get them jobs, and they actually pay a lot of their way, so we call them clients. But we also have donors and sponsors, which a business would call customers or clients. They're the ones that give the money in, right? We have vendors. We have people we buy stuff from, just like a business, because we are a business. Um, we need partners. We need um, um, referral partners, affiliate partners. Uh, we need... Um, financial partners, just like a business does, uh, banks, credit unions, financial institutions, as well as investors, which could be something different than a donor a little bit in the uh, nonprofit world. But the relationships all revolve around four things, which are the cornerstones of all relationships, whether you're in business or personal relationships, nonprofit or for-profit. Number one, there's got to be the common ground of mutual interest. Something's got to be important to both people, both parties. And they share that value. Uh, they share that interest. Second, then, comes mutual trust. Uh, without trust, there's nothing. And one of the best ways of teaching people they can trust you is, is this instinct that you need to build in terms of how much of you they want to take at any given time. And we trust those boundaries. And they feel they can trust us with those boundaries. And as the relationship grows, they relax those boundaries or expand those boundaries, I guess would be a better way to put it. And, and the, the relationship grows. So uh, interest, trust, mutual respect for the, for the uh, relationship to continue to grow, there's got to be that respect for each other, which goes beyond just liking each other or having something in interest. Um, you admire the other person to a certain extent. And then lastly, a value for value exchange, okay? If I am not giving value in a relationship and the other person is, two things will happen, one of two things, or maybe both sequentially. Either they'll cut back the amount of value they're giving to me or the priority of giving me value, or they'll stop giving me value altogether and the relationship will either go dormant or if it's so egregiously uneven and so adamantly by one party, I'm you know, not going to participate in giving you value, but I expect value from you, that, that may be damaged irreparably. I mean, but we have relationships all the time where we like the person, but events have just kind of separated us a little bit, but we meet them a year or two down the road, 
and we're, it's like no time's gone by. And we go, we've got to get together. Okay, let's go have lunch. And we and that that flame restarts immediately. If those other three things were there, the respect, the trust, and the common interest, and we still have that common interest, it can be renovated very quickly. So um, those are the things that really are at the foundation. Are we building a long-term relationship? For example, um, and I, I do this in my book and on, on my tapes, I talk about the difference between what I call a finite relationship and an infinite relationship. I get this from a book written by a man named James Carsey uh, in his book, Finite and Infinite Games, uh, The World is Play, or Life is Play and Possibility. And in that, he talks about the fact we play two kinds of games. Finite games are those games which we play to bring to an end with a winner and a loser. But the whole purpose is to end the game once we start playing. Infinite games are different. They are engaged in, and the whole purpose of the game is to continue play. And as long as people continue to play, all players are winning. And instead of playing within a set of boundaries, like a finite game, we, com we continually renegotiate the boundaries to keep the game going. Does that make sense? And so a lot of people in sales attack sales as a finite game. Okay, I'm starting this. Oh, good, we're in the process. And then I want to I want to close this and shut it down. And I win. I got your money. Right? I remember a sales manager told me, sales is war. Right? I don't know, but I don't like that model. Okay? I don't like scorched earth. I want relationships that are going to pay me forever because I'm providing value. And what I'm providing is much less of value to me than it is to them. And what they're giving me is of much more value to me than it is to them. We're both winning. And it continues. And so that's the best way to do games. Sorry. Let me interject in here. Um, Joyce White Nelson says on here, conversational sales builds rapport. And then we're able to come back later. And you're talking about that. Um, so, um, Clay, uh, I want to get back to this, this leadership piece. We are an influencer as a leader. We're sitting in the influence seat with our stakeholders. And so I know I've, I've seen one of your digital programs, which is quite good. And I don't, I don't remember how I got there or what platform it was on. But I'm, I'm thinking um, the stuff you're talking about, the leaders that are listening to this can then be empowered to, to well, actually, we're selling the concept to our board members that they need to get off their, <clears throat> their parking lot and do something. And so there's a sales piece to convince them to do what they are supposed to be doing anyway. And then it means we've got to, we've got to sell them the concept, sell volunteers on the concept. So there's, there's still the same principle of value exchange here, but you have some tools for those people to share and then they can, they can help educate those people around them because it's not only the leader that does this. In fact, we're the leader. We're not the doer. Exactly. And if you wanted to find leadership, I like to define it this way. Leadership is getting all the right things done through other people. Good leaders get things done, done through other people. They don't talk about getting it done. 
They don't think about getting it done. They don't circumlocute around getting it done. They get it done. But it gets done through other people. They have that capacity to make it of such value to the person they're delegating to and, and the belief in, in that it's such a meaningful thing to the person, not to the leader, but to the person they're delegating to, that they can't help but do it. And that is leadership. Whenever we are trying to get somebody to get something done, we are leading. But guess what? That's also selling. Selling is leadership. I am trying to motivate another person to make a commitment and do something, whether that's write me a check or whether that's let's schedule a common uh, webinar or whether that's will you be on our board? Whatever it is you're asking them to do is the sale. And I don't like to have sales presentations. I like to have sales conversations. I don't like to close sales. I like to commence relationships where we get things done. Awesome. It sounds like you're on a soapbox there, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to amen all of that. Um, I'm going to give a short um, commercial here. We have sponsors that enable us to give away um, some of our, our, our resources to people. And uh, I'm going to give the short um, reference to WordSprint, which is our sponsor for this version of nonprofit exchange. We come back like we're on the we're on the, the the final lap of this race we call the interview. So we'll have a couple of minutes. I want you to think about what thought do you want to leave with leaders or what challenge or what tip as as we come back and let you have the last three minutes of the interview. I want to talk about WordSprint. WordSprint is a print house, but really it's a it's a mailing house. And WordSprint teaches you how to stay in touch with your donors. It's called top of mind marketing. We want our donors to continue being donors. So we continue this value exchange that Clay is talking about. They've given you money. What have you done with the money? So it's, it's 30% the rhythm, how often do you speak to them? And it's not just when you ask for money. Who do you talk to, the right person, and the right message, 30, 30, 30, 10% is how it looks. So Bill Gilmer and his team at WordSprint help you stay in touch with your donors. And in just about every case, and maybe in every case, the donor amounts go up and they're sustained. So WordSprint, that's P-R-I-N-T, WordSprint.com. Go there and you can ask for a free consultation on what you can do to raise the bar on the income from your loyal, trusting, faithful donors. So Clay, as we round out this really helpful interview, what do you want to leave people with? Um, well, a couple of things. Number one, the biggest reason salespeople fail, in 33 years of sales management, I found this to be true, they simply do not contact enough people. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> If I could do anything for success in nonprofit or profit, you have got to totally change your paradigm for how many people it takes to meet your donation and sponsorship goals. You just simply must contact more people. Secondly, and I call this, 
Exposure is everything. Get out there, press the flesh, go to networking events, meet people. Um, secondly, the fortune is in the follow-up. Now, you don't need to follow up face-to-face. That takes too much time sometimes. But that's what you have systems for, like uh, Word, what was it? Word print? Word print. Word print. Word print. Uh, perfect. It's a one-to-many channel of follow-up that takes no more time to send 10 out than a million, or, you know, relatively speaking. Uh, so that one-to-many channel of, of, of keeping in touch with people highly leverages your ability to do so. And invite them in those messages, in your newsletters, in those letters that you send to keep top of mind awareness. Invite them to take a step in. That's follow-up. Because what, what dictates when they're ready to buy? It's not what we say. It's not even... It's not even what, they don't even determine the timing of it. Most of the time, it's some event in their life that takes place that determines that. And we've got to be top of mind when that happens so that they think of us and come in. The third is work with the willing. The ones that step forward to you, look for that next step. Everybody you're selling to should not go uh, you should not part from them without having clearly defined our next step. So, John, what's our next step? Well, what would you like our next step to be? This kind of language is so critical. And if he says, well, let's get together. Okay. Well, hey, as long as we're here, what time next week would be good to get together? And you commit it. Sales, as in leadership, is nothing more than getting commitment from the other person. Clay, so Neves. Clay Neves, you're, you're good at what you do. And um, it's called personalsalesdynamics.com. And we'll put in the notes here where they can find your online classes. Thank you so much for sharing such a wealth of information, practical information today. Can I just put that in the notes here? Yes, you can. Okay, I'll, I'll put it in the notes. We're at time, so we're going to sign off the recording. Russell, it's good to have you here today. Clay, thanks a million. And, uh, My it's pleasure. It's keeping that conversation going so that we always know what that That's is right. that those folks want needs exactly. to get done. And then when we're in constant communication, we know what it is. Two brilliant guys. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>